0: Washington, D.C., a street musician took his violin, went to the uh, subway station, one of the subway stations there, during the morning commute as people passed by, hurrying on the way to work. The street musician sat down, took out his violin, leaving the case open in front of him for the donation that might come in, and he began to play. People streamed past, but a few threw in a quarter. One person stopped, and she stayed the entire time this man played on his violin, for she recognized the musician. It was Joshua Bell, world-famous violinist, playing incognito on a $3.5 million violin true story. The experiment was set up to see if people would take time out of their busy lives to stop and recognize something that was truly beautiful. The results were virtually no one did. A few quarters were thrown into his case. The one person who stopped, this lady, she recognized Joshua Bell because she had been at his concert a few weeks earlier in the Library of Congress. She had no idea what was going on that day in the subway station, but she wasn't going to miss out. She positioned herself 10 feet away from Joshua Bell, front and center, with a huge grin on her face. She said, quote, "'It was the most astonishing thing I've ever seen in Washington.'" Joshua Bell was standing there playing at rush hour and people were not stopping, not even looking, and some were flipping quarters at him. Quarters, she writes. She goes on to say that she was, quote, shocked that something as astoundingly beautiful was so easily disregarded. My question for us is, Do you do the same when it comes to the church? Are you possibly disregarding something as astoundingly beautiful, something as extraordinary as the church of Jesus Christ? See, in in Joshua Bell, the, the extraordinary was... In a way, hidden in the ordinary. The extraordinary was was cloaked in the ordinary. And the church can be like that. And so we've entitled this series, The Ordinary Extraordinary Church. Because almost no one, almost no one recognized Joshua Bell that day. And the point of this series and this sermon is that we would not make the same mistake when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ. Yes, the church and certainly this church, it is ordinary to be sure in many ways. But friends, look more closely and you will see how extraordinary the church really is. So today I want to look at this passage that Emily read. And here, see a glimpse into the nature of the church. Here we find the church succinctly described. I would summarize the description like this. That the church is God's beloved people, joined together by God's Son to be a dwelling for God's Spirit. That's not an exhaustive definition, but I think it's a summation of the picture of the church The extraordinary picture we find in Ephesians chapter 2, that the church is God's beloved people joined together by God's Son, Jesus Christ, as a dwelling for God the Holy Spirit. Let's break that down into three parts. Here's the first part. First, the church is comprised of God's beloved People, God's beloved people. You see, the Apostle Paul here is writing mainly to Gentile or non Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. He has just said that previously, previously they were, quote, separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Catch that. Previously, separate excluded, foreigners to God's promises, not belonging at all to the people of God. Not only that, realize these two groups hated each other, Jew and Gentile. To the Jews, the Gentiles were dogs. And the Gentiles considered the Jewish people to be enemies of the human race. To say that Jew and Gentile in this day didn't like each other is a massive understatement. But in verse 19, notice verse 19. In verse 19, the apostle says to these Gentile believers, you, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. fellow citizens with God's people. Listen, if you are... If you are a citizen of this country, you, you understand something of the significance of this. As a citizen, you enjoy the same status as every other citizen. You enjoy the same privileges, at least you're supposed to. The same, same right to bo- vote. The same, same protections under the law, at least we're supposed to. Whether you were born a citizen here or, like my wife, you immigrated to this country and became a citizen, it doesn't matter. We are fellow citizens. We share the same status, same standing as every other citizen. Now, what's supposed to be true in the country is absolutely true in the church in a far more profound way. We are fellow citizens citizens, with God's own people. Think about, think about how extraordinary this is. We live in a country with a grieving history of racial discrimination, a country that, if we're honest, is still more divided by race than we would want to admit. The truth is racial minorities have been grievously sinned against in the past and often still in the present. Yet in the church, in the church we get to be different. In the church we must be different. In the church we reflect, we must reflect this absolute equality together. Whether white, black, Hispanic, Asian, any other race or culture, Whatever tribe, language, people, or nation, as the book of Revelation puts it, regardless, we are fellow citizens with God's people, each one of us. Or, also by contrast, think about how polarized we are politically in our country. It would seem Republicans hate Democrats, and it would seem Democrats hate Republicans, And we can carry this into the church. There's a Christianity Today Today article online right now entitled, Many Churchgoers Want Sunday Morning Segregated by Politics. Many Churchgoers Want Sunday Morning Segregated by Politics. Subtitle, survey finds half of Protestants prefer to worship with people who share their views politically. Now, I acknowledge there might be a variety of factors that weren't taken into consideration. I acknowledge there are some complex issues at play. But I also ask you, doesn't that reveal a deficient view of the church? I only want to worship with those who share my political beliefs. Are we then fellow citizens with God's people? Friends, this means, this verse means we can join together, can't we? Regardless of any other difference we may have. Here, here singles and and married couples, people with different marital status, can care for each other and have genuine fellowship together. Here, here empty nesters can minister to families with newborns. And families with newborns can minister to empty nesters. Here, Here, young and old can worship and serve side by side despite the age gap. Here, whether your kids are in homeschool or private school or public school, you can sincerely love and care for each other. For here, we share the most profound thing in common. Here, we're fellow citizens with God's people. But it gets even better, doesn't it? Verse 19 continues. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And notice, and members of the household of God. Members, members of God's own family. It's it's a great thing to be fellow citizens. But it's even greater still to be members of the same family, having God as our Father together, and you, if you have trusted Christ, you as His own beloved child. You see, friends, the church, the church is a group of people who are the object of God's special love, God's saving, redeeming love. And God's view of the church must shape our view of the church. Think about it. When you sit down for Thanksgiving dinner in a couple of months, it's hard to believe, it's only about two and a half months away. When you sit down to Thanksgiving dinner, you probably don't invite someone to Thanksgiving dinner just because they're a fellow citizen of the state of California. I mean, if you do that, that's great. But you probably don't go to Costco, meet someone, and say, oh, you're a citizen of California too? Come on over for Thanksgiving. You don't do that. I mean, we have a certain bond as fellow Californians. That only goes so far. But if you are, if you are in the same family, if you have have the same father, and you are brothers and sisters in that family, well, that changes everything, doesn't it? I have a sister in L.A., If she needed something, I wouldn't hesitate to go. My my father's in Orange County. If he needed something, I would certainly try to be there. My mother is in West Virginia. I have aunts and uncles in, in South Carolina. If they needed something, I would be there as soon as I could. Shouldn't I have something of a similar attitude toward my brothers and sisters in Christ? Especially those who are joined with me in the same local church. It's been said, don't go to church for the friends you choose. Go to church for the family God chooses for you. Don't go to church for the friends you want to choose. Go to church for the family God chose for you. So friends, ask yourself this question for application. How How is being God's beloved people together, how is that shaping how you relate to others right here? How is this extraordinary picture of the people of God, how is this impacting how you relate to people who are different from you in particular? I mean, does being God's beloved people together Does that ensure you treat people who are different from you racially with absolute equality? It must. Or or ask yourself this. Which is more important? Sharing the same season of life or sharing this extraordinary status together in the church? Which do you value more? They're married, I'm married. They're single, I'm single. Or we're fellow citizens. Which is more important to you? That you share the same politics? Or you share the same Father in heaven? Or is it more important to you to share the same educational approach for your children than it is to be in the same family of God? friends if your closest fellowship if your closest fellowship is only with people who look like you share all the same preferences as you then this view of the church might not be impacting you like god wants and he has something good for you he wants you to see those around you as fellow citizens and members of His own family. But who who has made this possible, right? Well, we are God's beloved people, secondly, joined together by God's Son. We are God's beloved people, secondly, joined together by God's own Son. Look at verse 20 now. This household now in verse 20, verse 20 is built, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So now the metaphor for the church changes from citizens in a nation and family members to a building project, a structure. A building built on a foundation, a foundation of the apostles and prophets. Well, what does that mean? Well, the apostles were Jesus' authorized representatives who wrote Holy Scripture by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And prophets, prophets here are not, not probably Old Testament prophets. In light of the order, he uses apostles and then prophets. Most likely, these are New Testament era prophets who also communicated divinely given truth. So, these are two groups, two groups of people who communicated truth about God, or from God rather, especially truth about Jesus Christ. For he is, the verse says, the cornerstone. The cornerstone of this entire foundation for the church. The, the cornerstone in this day, in a building project, the cornerstone was the, the essential stone. You, you laid the cornerstone first because all the other foundation stones had to line up with that cornerstone. That's what God is saying here about His Son. He is the essential stone. He is the essential stone and the foundation of the church. This truth must be in line with Him. Friends, the the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ is apostolic truth about Jesus Christ. The foundation of the church is essentially the gospel, the good news, the good news of what Jesus has accomplished for you and me. And we must, we must never, Never get detached from that foundation. Think about it. If we had a major earthquake, and I've only been in minor earthquakes, but if we, if we had a major earthquake, it seems to me at least, the, the worst thing, one of the worst things that could happen to your house would be if it got shaken loose from its foundation. You never want your home off its foundation. If, If your home gets separated from its foundation, that place is no longer inhabitable and it's probably coming down. And the same is true for the church. In an article that appeared, I believe, a week ago, Dr. Michael Horton wrote the following, quote, In a Monday meeting with evangelical leaders at the White House, President Trump reportedly warned of violence, violence against conservative Christians if the Republican Party loses in November. Evangelicals, President Trump said, were one election away from losing everything. Horton writes, as evangelicals, we would do well to correct the president on this point. If an election can cause us to lose everything, what is it exactly we have in the first place? Surely, he says, we can be grateful for any public servant who upholds the First Amendment, and we should applaud fellow believers who ply their education and experience to defend religious freedom. Absolutely. However, he says, the church does not preach the gospel at the pleasure of any administration. The church preaches the gospel at Christ's pleasure. And then he says this, It is not when we're fed to the lions that we lose everything. It's when we preach another gospel. Oh, that's well said. I almost want to say it's a prophetic word for our time. We can be fed to the lions, and that's okay. But if we lose our foundation if we as a church lose this foundation, if we lose the apostolic message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, friends, we do lose everything then. This is why. This is why we preach like we do here. This is why we sing the songs we sing here. This is why we're trying to build this church on sound biblical doctrine that lines up always with that good news. But I know, I know it can be easy to say or think, Tab, I've heard it before. <laughs> Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I've heard that before. I know that message. Can we please move on to something different? Well, think about it like this. Everywhere else you go, in every, any other religious expression. Every every philosophy known to man, every other message from this culture can be summarized in two words, or at least attempted to be summarized, boiled down at least to this. It's an attempt at good advice. Good advice. The, The Jordan Peterson phenomenon is like this. He is the Canadian psychologist who is calling people to take responsibility for themselves which is a good thing. He's not a Christian but he's calling people to take responsibility. That's a good thing. I I bought a a summary of his book 12 Rules for Life An Antidote to Chaos I need that Here's rule number one Stand up straight with your shoulders back I need to hear that Rule number three, make friends with people who want the best for you That's a good idea. Rule number seven, pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. It's great advice. Rule eight, tell the truth. That's good advice, friends. I I embrace that advice. I recommend that advice. But only the church has good news, not good advice. Do you know the difference? Only the church tells you, here's what God has done for you, not what you must now do for God as its foundation. I remember, I remember years ago, in fact, I believe it was 20 years ago, preaching my way as a green, green pastor, the greenest of pastors through the book of Ephesians. And we were in Ephesians 1 or 2. I'm not sure which one. And I was preaching, I'm sure, a rather forgettable message. God have mercy on those poor people. I was talking about how God has set His people apart entirely by their grace. And nothing we have done. At the close of the message, I invited people to come down front if they wanted prayer for any reason. And a woman came down to me with tears in her eyes saying she had never understood these truths before. She said she had been a Christian for many years. She had never heard the distinction between justification and sanctification never heard the distinction between God declares you righteous with the righteousness of His Son through faith and faith alone by His grace. She'd never heard that distinguished from sanctification, a process of incrementally growing in Christ's likeness. She'd never heard that. She'd been bound up in in legalism all of her life, trying to somehow earn God's favor or achieve God's favor. And now she realized she could relate to God in freedom and confidence by his grace through what Jesus Christ had done. This is our foundation, this is our cornerstone, this is our message. This is extraordinary. And there's nothing there's nothing ordinary about the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. You might, you might ask yourself, am I personally fixed on this foundation? Am I personally reminding myself of this foundation? Am I personally living in the good of this foundation? Or have I forgotten it to some degree? Friends, God might want to remind you of what Christ, the cornerstone, has accomplished for all who believe. But I want to I just not assume too much here. The Apostle Peter. Peter takes this reference to Christ as a cornerstone taken from the book of Isaiah, and he, he joins it with another quotation from Isaiah as a warning, actually. He says, if you do not believe on Jesus Christ, he will, not be a, he will not be a stone of salvation for you. He will not be a stone of rescue for you. He will be a stone you stumble over and fall to your own destruction. So friends, you need to be joined to this cornerstone by, by believing. Jesus Christ obeyed in all the ways you and I cannot. Jesus Christ died to receive what is due for our sins. Jesus Christ rose from the grave that you might have life from Him and in Him by believing. I urge you, don't stumble over Jesus in unbelief. Come to Him, the cornerstone, believing, trusting, relying on His finished work to take away your sins. And friends, He will. So track with me, the church. The church is God's beloved people. Joined together by God's Son. Joined together by His finished work. But what are we joined then to become? Thirdly, thirdly a dwelling. A dwelling for God's Spirit. Look back to verse 21. Verse 21. In whom? In Jesus. The whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's what we're becoming. Notice, in Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this structure Jesus is building, this temple is a a sanctuary in which God lives. God lives by His Spirit. These Gentile believers, they knew about temples. In Ephesus, where this letter first went, they had the famous temple to the goddess Artemis or Diana, one of the seven wonders of the world. They also knew about the temple in Jerusalem where the living God had manifested or made known His presence and His glory. But now, now they're told that God is forming a new sanctuary for Himself, not made of brick and mortar or inanimate objects, but made of living stones. Now we, are being built together into a dwelling for God by His Spirit. Now, you might say, Tab, that's about the universal church. And you're right. I think that's particularly mind The church in all places at all times. But friends, you experience that in local churches. In local churches. The Apostle Paul, this same Apostle, he wrote, to the local church in the city of Corinth, saying they were the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you, local church in Corinth, and yes, individual believers too, but you, local church in Corinth, you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you. In other words, every genuine local church is an expression of that. A dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. But maybe the challenge for us is all this looks so ordinary that we forget. Maybe the challenge is, Tab, we're in a community center. What are you talking about? It's not some medieval cathedral. It's a bunch of people meeting in East County. That's kind of ordinary. Yeah, maybe. It's kind of like this. Don't, don't take any offense to this, please. But it's kind of like you're looking at a kind of rundown house from the outside. You know, the paint is peeling. Ah, the roof needs to be replaced. The, the screens on the windows are torn. The, the yard's overgrown with weeds. They're parking cars in the yard itself, and some of them are propped up on cinder blocks. I'm not going to mention any places around here. But you don't look at that house, you don't look at that house and say, man, a king lives there. Clearly a king dwells in that dwelling you say, look, it's just, that is ordinary at best, but that's the mistake I think we make when we look at the church and maybe even this church. It's a community center. There's a screen. Oh yeah, fancy red curtain. <sighs> Nothing that draws you or wows you aesthetically. It looks rather ordinary, but friends, the king of all kings dwells in our midst, along with every other genuine church. The king himself lives here among his people. That, that is extraordinary. And I hope, I hope you sense at least a little of that when you come here. as we come together for gathered worship i hope you sense god's nearness in a way you don't typically on your own now sometimes you might that's great but when when you come here i hope i hope you sense god's nearness to His people a little differently because here the living stones of this church are gathered visibly and tangibly and here we are, this visible expression of that temple of the Lord, a dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. So, so friends, come to this ordinary gathering with expectancy. Expectancy. Expecting God to meet us. Expecting God to meet you. Maybe encourage you, refresh you, renew your faith. Resist the thought that says, I'm too tired to go to that old community center today. So many other things I want to do. I mean, I could be at the desert. I could be at the beach. I could be at the mountains. Resist that thought and think, I wonder, oh, I wonder how God might want to meet us as the living stones gather of Grace Church visibly and tangibly. Come expectantly to this ordinary meeting because here God lives by His Spirit. That's the church according to this passage. God's beloved people joined together by God's own Son to be a dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. Now, we began this sermon with a world-class musician playing in a subway station. And most everyone just saw an ordinary street musician and a few threw him a quarter. But one lady... One lady recognized the extraordinary things she was witnessing. And you recall? She was shocked that something so beautiful could be so easily disregarded. I ask us again, are we doing that with the church? Are we easily disregarding the church of Jesus Christ? It's often said, follow the trail of your time and money. Your calendar and your checkbook. Follow the trail of your time and money. And at the end of that trail, you will find what you most value in life. In other words, our actions speak louder than our words, right? Ask yourself this. What, what have my actions been showing About how I view the church of Jesus Christ. Are my actions showing that it's merely ordinary to me? If so, consider from God's word how extraordinary this picture is. Consider from God's word how extraordinary this is. I'm not trying to manipulate you, this is God's beloved people. God's beloved people, fellow citizens, members of His own family, sharing God Himself as our Father, joined together by God's Son, built on the apostolic gospel, the good news, not good advice, to be a dwelling, a dwelling where God lives Himself by His Spirit. Friends, in this series, and I hope right now, behold with me the Yes, ordinary, but extraordinary church of Jesus Christ. Let's respond in prayer, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper.